Hello once again, and thank you for joining us. This is Space Nuts, where we talk astronomy and space science every week. And it's episode 320, and you know what that means. It's the one that came over after 319, yes. And, and it's actually, co coincidentally, it's the one that comes before 321, oh, gosh. at least for this particular moment in time. Uh, speaking of which, uh, we are answering questions entirely today although we've got one little thing we'd like to talk about called Artemis 1. You've probably heard of it. Uh, but uh, Duncan is asking about space-time. Fenton is asking about the ice on Europa. Uh, Martin, Martin 1 we'll call him, uh, wants to know about the moon. Uh, Sandy is asking about minor objects. Gareth uh, wants to talk about why light is so slow. And Martin 2 has a question about black skies. That's all to come on this edition of Space Nut. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me as always is my good friend and uh, astronomer at large, Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Good to see you again. And um, I'm very intrigued by your new device. My new toy. Yes, yeah. new toy. I'll put it uh, for, for the people who watch the podcast <laughs> on YouTube later. That's my new toy. It's a um, Roadcaster 2 Pro, and basically it enables me to do everything through the one processor and uh, hopefully glitch-free. <laughs> But it's got, all sorts of other little, it's got all sorts of gizmos in it that I, I am really looking forward to playing with, um, like this. <laughs> That'll wake you up. Yeah. And, <laughs> I didn't think and, I was asleep until you did that. <laughs> and, and plenty more. So, um, yeah, we'll have some fun with those. Um, how you been? Very well, thank you. Yes, all good. Uh, sadly, Marnie has not been very well. Oh. She... Uh, had an accident at Pilates on Friday. Um, oh. Hit the ground very hard on her face. Uh, so she's mm. got two black eyes and a lot yeah. of holes around Pole her. Pole dancing neck. is really dangerous. <laughs> I thought it I thought it was something different, but no, you're right. No, it's um it's part of some contraption that you use in Pilates. You can tell I never do any of these things. Uh where you uh, you you're basically sort of pulling yourself around by your own weight uh, yeah. and it uses handles with pulleys and apparently Marnie let go of a handle that she shouldn't have done uh, with the result that she found herself approaching uh, landfall kind of re-entry uh, coming down to earth very quickly and landed on her face which has not done her oh. any use at all no <laughs> pass on our regards I will it's it's only by coincidence that um, Judy has been unwell the last week or two, so that's another thing we're dealing with. But um, fingers crossed everyone will be better soon. I hope so. She's. Um, it's a shame because she's uh, got black eyes, which I worry yeah. about in case anybody thinks I've been punching her in the face, which I haven't. But what's as, even... as against black skies. <laughs> yes. What's even more of a worry... Uh, is that she starts a new job in, uh, in two weeks. So, Well, they're going to have a high opinion of you, aren't they? Mm, exactly, quite so. <laughs> yeah. and, and those bruises take a long time to... Yeah, they do, I know. It's a worry. Oh, wait. Yeah. Mm. She's going now, back to... Um, uh, sorry. sorry, go on. 
I was just going to say she's going back to her old trade. Oh, what, <laughs> what exactly? Which she gave up 23 years ago. She's going to be cabin crew again. Oh, wow. Yeah. Really? <laughs> she is. Gosh. With a well-known Australian airline that I won't mention. Uh, oh, yeah, fantastic. She's, she's going to be cabin crew. Oh, <laughs> that's that, lovely. Isn't that great? I know. I'm yeah, thrilled. Perfect. I'm thrilled. I've got plenty of jobs around at the moment. There are. America. That's right. Yeah, you could probably be a flight attendant as well if you wanted, Andrew. Uh, you fed up for radio. I don't think I could do it. <laughs> I don't think it I could. So hard. I just haven't got that in me, working uh, hard. It's yeah. just not a thing. Mm. Mm. Uh, now, before we get to our questions, we better talk about Artemis One because uh, yeah, everything was looking optimal till it wasn't, and till, it looks yeah. like a, a fuel leak has uh, forced them to scrub the launch. No, uh, not really a oh, fuel no? leak. Uh, it was a more subtle problem than that, Andrew. Ooh. So the launch was scrubbed. They, uh, it's not aborted as such. It's postponed. Um, they. Stopped the countdown at T minus forty minutes, I think, uh, last night our time. So what what happens? Uh, you know, you've got this um, amazing SLS, the Space Launch System, uh, consists of basically one of the fuel tanks that used to be used on the space shuttle. It's something like that. It's slightly slightly bigger, but that's why it's orange, the same color as the space shuttle fuel tanks were orange, and they've yep. coupled that to old space shuttle engines. Um, this is a recycling job, but there are four sure of them is. rather than three on the shuttle. And those, uh, they're Rocket 9 engines, have very considerable thrust, and they have to be uh, conditioned before the uh, launch starts, before they're lit up, because w the first thing they're going to feel uh, the engines is uh, the hydrogen and oxygen fuel coming in, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen. And the liquid hydrogen is at minus 253 degrees Celsius. And, you know, you get that on your skin, you know about it, as do the yeah. metal engines. If you don't bleed it in beforehand, a slow, you know, a slow supply of this stuff coming in to, to get the engines at the right temperature. And engine mm. number three never got to its correct temperature. And that's why they aborted the launch. Um, I think they've had this problem before, and it sounds to me, you know, like a sticky valve or something of that sort uh, that's not bleeding the liquid hydrogen correctly. So it has been postponed. Uh, the next window is uh, on Friday this week, our time, Friday the 2nd, might even be Saturday morning. It's 2 a.m. Yeah, the, yeah the it would time. be. Yeah. Mm. So... Um, for the second attempt. If that fails, it'll be the 5th of September. And what's interesting is uh, the reason why they can't go any sooner, sooner than Friday, Andrew, is because if they went today or tomorrow, um, the spacecraft would find itself in the moon's shadow on its way out to the moon, uh, and a phenomenon called an eclipse, and they wouldn't get any sun to the solar panels. Oh, right. <laughs> so... That would stop things. So yeah. So next Friday's hopefully go for go for launch then. Yeah. Um, they haven't got much of a window though, have they? I think um, I heard that they've got to do this within a twenty-two day time span. Is that right? Uh, they they do actually. They if they don't get it on f uh, Friday, then Monday's the next one. Failing that, it's the middle of October because it's oh. all about the moon being in the right place and you yeah. know all of that stuff has to work out. You can't just say press the button mm. anytime. 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've heard that there's like 50,000 people there to watch. Yeah, so they were. They're going to be jilted. Yeah, I think they were a bit upset about that, but yes, you can't but... help that. And, of course, it's part of the process. As the NASA administrator said, his words were, uh, everything has got to be exactly right before we light the candle. Exactly. And I never knew they used candles on those things. You know, I was yeah, that's, the button that's, more, you press. that's what all that sparking is underneath when they're about to ignite the engines. Or yep. candle power. Candle power, yeah. yeah. That's what it is. Some of the... I, I mean, I've been reading up on all the things that they're going to be doing on board the... Mm. Um, the, 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 the spacecraft when it's finally up there. I mean, they've got stuff stuck on the outside of it to read radiation. Mm. They've got stuff on the inside to test uh, various parameters. They've got uh, uh, other machines that will be doing um, surface readings from the moon. And uh, look, there's a lot going on. And that's. There is, yeah, lots of science, as well as, <laughs> you know, the three mannequins on board. Uh, Munikin, uh, what's his name? I've forgotten his name. That's terrible. Compost. No, no, he's a he's some he's a, a basically a, a human figure which, which is festooned with uh, with sensors and radiation detectors and things. It's named after a gentleman whose first name I can't remember, but his second name was Compo Compos, C O M P O S, I think it is. Who was the engineer, the electrical engineer, who worked out? how to get the Apollo 13 astronauts back to Earth safely. Wow. So, um, yeah, so very played a very important role in, uh, in the Apollo 13 saga. And so he's commemorated by having this, uh, this mannequin. Sadly, the other two are female figures who seem to, de- to be devoid of any limbs, which is, makes them a bit unattractive, I have to say, but... Um, but mm. they've got the important bits there, I think. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and then there are then there are Lego Lego figures, and of course there's a Snoopy, um, yep. and a Shaun the Sheep as well. Sheep. Yep. Yeah, Shaun the Sheep from uh, Nick Parks Hardman Productions. Oh, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. So that they well, will they will all be waiting to go as well. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. We um, we wait with bated breath. Uh, but not happening as yet. Uh, maybe tomorrow. As yeah, the case yes. may be. Tomorrow, mm. tomorrow re- as of recorded time for this, yes. Yes, or release date. Yes, release date, because, that's it. Yeah, we, we, date. we have a launch of um, 1,800 hours Thursday. Okay. Right. I don't know when he does it, but anyway. <laughs> Uh, right now, let's go to uh, some questions. And first up, uh, this one from Duncan in the UK. Hello, it's Duncan here in the UK from Weymouth again. Another question, this time about space time. Can you please explain what space time is actually made out of? I understand people say that there's various quantum fields and all that sort of thing, but space-time is bent by masses that sit in it, such as the Earth, um, you know, which explains gravity and all that. But if it's bent and if it's expanding, then space-time has to be made out of something. But what actually is it made out of other than just such vague terms as a quantum field? So, you know, is it made of atoms of something or some other fundamental particle? 
um, just what is it? Can we get hold of it and put a lump of it in the jar? I'm just interested to know what space-time actually physically is. Okay, keep up the good work, and I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you, Duncan. Uh, always great to hear from you. You uh, always ask insightful questions, and the answer is blue tack. <laughs> it's not blue tack. Uh, um, that's near enough, you know. It's, I mean, um, Duncan's already on the money. He's saying, "What? What? How, could you put it in a jar?" Well, it's in a jar already. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and the jar is in it too. So, yeah, look, it's. Um, I guess the. And I understand where Duncan's coming from, of course, because at one stage in the history of humankind, scientists thought that space was filled with something called the ether, um, which basically was the medium which transmitted light radiation. It was before they knew about radio waves. This was in the 18, not late 19th century. So the ether was, and that was a comfortable way of imagining space. You had a medium through which uh, light could travel, and it was exactly analogous to the Earth's atmosphere through which sound travels. Sound has mm. a, a medium, or the sound's a compression wave, and they already knew that um, that light is a transverse wave, more like the way a guitar string vibrates. Um, but that was that whole idea got thrown in the rubbish bin by uh, two scientists, uh, uh, Mickelson and Morley. Um, to professors, actually, I think one of them was actually, they may even have both been military guys. I have to look back at that. It's a long time since I've written about Mickelson and Morley or Michelson and Morley. But they had something called the Mickelson-Morley experiment, which um, used light itself to determine that there isn't a medium that light travels through. <laughs> so, um, and that's because um, light, the, they found the velocity of light is invariant, you know, which is the fundamental of fundamental prospect of relativity. Um, so that threw out the idea of there being a medium that transmits light. And in a sense, that threw, threw out any idea of something you could bottle, you know, to put it in Duncan's terms, that there isn't anything. Now, Duncan's absolutely right in that space is full of stuff. Um, it's a, and I'm reading here from Wikipedia because I can't think of this list. Uh, it's a near perfect vacuum, of course, but it's got this low density of particles in it. Uh, a plasma of hydrogen and helium, electromagnetic radiation, magnetic fields, neutrinos, dust, and cosmic rays. So mm. all of that uh, is in space. Um, and the, you know, the, the, they are small amounts. Um, there's five to 10 protons per cubic centimeter in the inter, interplanetary space. That's the space between the planets. Um, and all there's all the stuff in space. That's the, the point that I'm trying to make. But that's not space itself, and that's the, the thrust of Duncan's question. And the answer is, and once again, I'm reading from Wikipedia because it puts it absolutely succinctly. Uh, space-time is a mathematical model. 
that combines the three dimensions of space and one dimension of time into a single four-dimensional manifold. They don't say Riemannian manifold, but that's what it is. So it's really um, a mathematical model of the structure of the universe. And But we know that that mathematical model behaves in certain ways, exactly as Duncan says. You put a mass in it and it will distort it. Uh, that's because it's a four-dimensional manifold. It will change its shape. Um, so uh, that is the best answer that any physicist can give because there isn't another one. There's nothing that says, yes, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's something like the ether. It's nothing like the ether. It's simply a mathematical construct which... Uh, works extraordinarily well and fits, you know, fits what we observe. More than that, we do not know. So we live inside a mathematical puzzle. Yes, we do. And that's led some people to think that we're actually, you know, we're in fact, we're a simulation of some sort, that, that we're yes. not real, that we're, in fact, didn't you write about that in one of your um, uh, fevered maybe. imagination <laughs> books? <laughs> Uh, it's well it's, it's you know it's it, it isn't it's probably the basis of the matrix as well i can't remember what the matrix is about because i never watched this stuff well the ma matrix <laughs> is about people yeah living in a construct but they're yes. actually in in the real world they're being fed on by machines oh, okay oh that's nice that's mm. yes Good anyway thought, isn't it it is yeah but uh, notwithstanding that if if we are part of a simulation uh then that suggests that space-time should be quantized. In other words, it should go in tiny, tiny steps rather than a continuous, uh, just a continuous movement. And right. so if ever we discover that time, for example, is quantized, then we'll know we're in a simulation and that you and I aren't real. We're just a mathematical model. Yeah, that's scary. Um, I, I think they have done movies like that. I think uh, actually... Uh, Vanilla Sky, which starred Tom Cruise, um, had a kind of had that kind of element to it, but it, it turned out well. I don't know. People like my movie and TV show recommendations, and if I blow the whistle on how this one ends, it's um, that's going to be much fun. <laughs> but I do recommend it. It's pretty old. Yeah, uh, it got panned by the critics, but I I liked it. I liked it. I enjoyed the concept. But basically, Tom Cruise plays a character whose life is unraveling. Yeah, and when he finds out why, that's ah. that's the twist in the story. But I can't, um, I, I won't blow it. I won't blow it for anybody. But uh, do you concur with the Wikipedia analogy? <laughs> yeah, it's what we. Are, that's how we deal with it in the world of astronomy and astrophysics. Wikipedia. Uh, it, <laughs> no, no, as a mathematical construct, it's what yeah. you know. All the. The, the whole thing about distortion of space and time, gravitational lensing, the whole deal comes out of that. Well, it's general relativity. That's the basis of it all, mm. which is quite extraordinary. Um, one mathematical model that's proved so uh, accurate and so predictable and you know that it it seems to be the it's not the it's not the answer to everything though because we know that uh, relativity and quantum theory are not compatible. At the tiniest yeah. scales. All right, more to learn. But uh, Duncan, there's your learn. answer. Yeah, um, sorry. Could be blue tech. Could be mathematic. <laughs> but whatever it is, you've got it. You've got it in a jar already. So put it on yes. your shelf. Label it space time, and you, you're there. Just sit there quietly at night, looking at it. It might just <laughs> penny might drop, especially if it's a jar full of pennies. 
okay, thanks, Duncan. Let's move on to our next question from Fenton. Yeah, hello, Fred and Andrew. This is Fenton in Minnesota. Uh, it's in the morning for you. I know that it's a little bit before 3 o'clock in the morning. So I have a question for you about the ice on Europa and how also that relates to the sulfur dioxide with which the surface of Europa is being bombarded. So if we go outwards uh, from the core of Europa, we've got the pure, relatively, we've got the water, then we've got the relatively pure congelation ice, and then on top of that we have the frazzle ice, which has a con high concentration of salt, and then on the surface of Europa, we've got sulfur dioxide with which the surface is being bombarded. So should that mean that there is an electrical potential that runs from the core out to the surface of Europa? Yeah. Anyway, I hope this is something to keep you thinking. Up all night. Bye now. See you later, Fenton. Thanks for the question. Uh, yeah, Europa's ice is not um, not simple, is it, really? No, it's not. <clears throat> and um, nice to hear Fenton talking about frazzle ice, which we were discussing about last, week. last week. That's right, yeah. So it, it's right that um, it is complex and <clears throat> there is sulfur dioxide on the surface. I can't remember um, how it was detected Uh a sulfur dioxide detector? Well, you could probably do it spectroscopically uh, with a sulfur dioxide detector, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it doesn't matter. Was it Juno? I don't know. Uh, but it's uh, one of the things that is going to be, uh, you know, um, uh, focused on by the uh, Europa Clipper, uh, NASA's spacecraft due to launch the year after next, 2024. Yeah. So... Um, Okay, so you've got uh, a surface of water ice, but also sulfur dioxide on top of it. And I think um, Fenton's question is, where, where does it come from? And I, I think the answer is not actually known. But the, uh, the, the external origin theory is the one that really um, has the most, I guess, the most impact. Uh, because we know that EO, the biggest moon, uh, sorry, the nearest of the Galilean moons to Jupiter, is spewing out sulfur uh, uh, all over the place. That's that's where the sulfur comes from. Um, yeah. And probably sulfur dioxide too, that uh, uh, it's, you know, there's, there's probably chemical origin for that. So, and, and those particles actually find their way to Jupiter itself um, because of the magnetic fields. They're, they're, the, the, the particles that come from EO are channeled by the basically the magnetic fields of, of Jupiter and, and constitute the radiation belts of Jupiter. But there is something called the EO footprint near, I think it's Jupiter's, it might be both of Jupiter's poles, but I've certainly seen it marked on Jupiter's south pole. And that's where the stuff coming from EO actually lands on the planet's cloud belts. Ah, uh, so it's not out of the question to think that Europa, which is kind of going the other way, but that Europa still bathed like the whole of the inner Jupiter, inner part of the Jupiter system, bathed by sulfur dioxide um, ions, probably, and that um, 
that that might be where it's come from. So that's a, it's a question that's not yet properly answered, and mm. maybe the Europa Clipper will give us the answer. But that's the thinking that yes, it's it's just because of the particle content of that whole region, a lot of it coming from Io itself, that we've got this sulfur dioxide on the planet's surface. Io is a messy, messy place. <laughs> it is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's a it's just a disaster, really, isn't it? So um, yeah. when you look at the images of it, there's yellow stuff all over, which is sulphur. Volcanoes going off willy-nilly. And all because it's so close to Jupiter that it's being squashed and squeezed um, in the gravitational pull of Jupiter. Yeah. Sounds like the average city on Earth, basically. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Sydney's better than that. You reckon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not many sulphur volcanoes around here. I, I avoid it like the plague, I must say. Yeah, you don't know the best bits, that's why. Oh, okay. <laughs> come, and, right. come and see us next time you're in Sydney. Yeah, well, you're in the best bit. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yes. Yeah. National parks all around you. We do, nice. that's right. Yes, it's mm. lovely. All right, thanks, Fenton. The answer is we don't know, but it could be, <laughs> could be Io's fault. Yeah. Mm. And thanks for the question. Uh, this is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Now, if you've never really thought much about cybersecurity before, it's probably a good time to get started because now more than ever, there are hackers and scammers and people trying to get your dough or get your personal information from your smart devices, uh, from your computers, whatever the case may be. Now, the way to secure your system is with a virtual private network and the best in the business at providing that kind of security is NordVPN. Uh, why are they the best? Because they've been doing this for a very long time and they are way ahead of the curve when it comes to the kinds of security you need to stay out of trouble or to stop people getting into your bank accounts or whatever it is. And they can do this in a great many ways. They can send you a, a hack through an email attachment. They can get onto your system through Wi-Fi, particularly public Wi-Fi at uh, airports and railway stations and libraries and public areas around um, businesses and towns and cities. There are so many different ways and they're getting more and more clever. Now, at the moment, they have got a fabulous deal going and uh, on top of that, a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you're not satisfied, Within 30 days, you can say, sorry, not for me. But this exclusive deal is the cybersecurity package uh, with an extra four months free tacked on. And uh, if I click on grab the deal or get the deal on, their, uh, on the uh, URL that they provide for you, it gives you a list of all the things you get. Now, if you go with the uh, complete package, you get high-speed, secure VPN, malware protection, tracker and ad blocker, cross-platform password management, data breach scanning, and one terabyte of encrypted cloud storage. So you can get all that, or variations of it, depending on how much you want to spend. To get into this deal, go to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and use the code word spacenuts. That's nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and use the code word SPACENUTS to get a special deal as a SPACENUTS listener with our sponsor, NordVPN. Now back to the show. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. SPACENUTS. All right, we're going to just uh, slam straight back into the questions, and this one comes from Martin. 
Hi guys, it's Martins from Latvia. I had a question about moons, uh, gravity effect on Earth. So when I know that uh, moon affects our water levels on Earth, like we have tides rising and falling, all that stuff, in the rivers and lakes and so on. But is it possible when moon's up in the sky, either at night or in the evening or in the day, I can jump higher or it doesn't work like that. I mean, that's a, maybe not such a drastic difference like in centimeters, but maybe in millimeters, like I can jump higher when the moon's gravity is helping me or so on. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, just was cu- I was curious about that one. <laughs> anyways, guys, have been listening since 2017 and yeah, please never stop and uh, take care and bye-bye then. Thank you, Martin. This sounds like a Latvian conspiracy leading up to the Winter Olympics, in my my opinion. But, Maybe so. It's um, you know, if they time it right, they might yeah. be able to do a record ski jump because the moon's in the right the moon's place. The right place. Yeah, it's a lovely country, is Latvia. We we were there a few years ago uh, with a tour. Took, took a tour group up there and part of one of uh-huh. our Aurora tours and a lovely train journey through the snow because we always go these things in winter. And, yeah. of course, lots of tours of Riga, the capital city, which is full of marvellous architecture. It's a stunning place. So you're very lucky, Martin. Mm. Um, and the answer is no. <laughs> no, it's, it's not quite no. Um, so the, the bottom line is uh, we're on the surface of a planet um, which is – gravitationally pulling us downwards. The moon is indeed uh, up in the sky and and has enough gravitational pull to affect the tides, exactly as as Martin says. But the moon's gravity, sorry, the moon's mass is only 180th of the Earth's mass. And it's 384,000 kilometres away on average. So its pull is very, very slight and in fact, what causes the tides is the difference uh, in the pull of the moon from one side of the Earth to the other. That's actually what it's all about. It's about the fact that you've got a body uh, that has liquid on both sides uh, and one side is nearer to the other, so it feels more of a pull. You're smiling. I guess your grandchildren have arrived. My is grandchildren that right? just come home from school and uh, yes, being their usual quiet selves. Well, I can't hear anything, so they're doing very well. <laughs> I, I would not put uh, long odds on them bursting in any second. All right, that's all right. Mm-hmm. Yep, we'll see how that goes. Um, so, questions, what are you doing and why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. can we join in? <laughs> and what are all those oh, buttons yeah. there? <laughs> can I push? What's this yeah. button for? <laughs> it's quite. Um, yeah. So uh, my guess is that you know if it affects you at all, it'll be in terms of microns rather than millimetres or, or centimetres. It's an interesting thing to ask, though. A great question from Martin. I, I probably should do the calculation, but I can't yeah. do that one in my head, unlike it, the barycentre one, which I did. <laughs> it, it could just make the difference at an Olympic Games high jump yes, or yes. pole vault if the moon just gets in the right place at the right second yeah, in the yeah. process. You yeah. just don't know. You don't know, and you, it's, you know, it might only take a micron. That's right. Yeah, could be enough just to stop, you know, just to get someone over the line, or over the top, or whatever it is they do in those sports, which I've never ever been very good at. Never tried pole vault. Did high jump at school, um, 
I, I, I wasn't very good at that. Did javelin, wasn't very good at that. Did shot put, just was total crap at that basically. Um, uh, yeah, I, when it came to athletics, I was sorely lacking. Hmm. It's not my forte. Mine neither, although I did for a while aspire to such things, but only for a short time. Yeah. I, <laughs> Until I, I realised I, I was useless. I, I don't know if it was because I was bad at it <clears throat> or if it's because it was something they forced us to do at school and I didn't want to. Mm. <laughs> Motivation goes a long way to success, I think. Indeed. So mm. sorry, Martin, I, I, it's a great question, uh, but I think the answer is very, very little indeed. Yes, no moon assist for your um Winter Olympic jump. Right. <laughs> Thanks, Martin. Uh, let's get closer to home uh, with Sandy in Melbourne. G'day, Fred and Andrew. It's Sandy here from Melbourne, Victoria. Hope you're both well and thank you for bringing us this great show. My question today is around various objects such as minor planets and asteroids in our solar system. With the exception of comets and objects smaller than what we're currently capable of detecting, have we mapped all the various obje- objects orbiting the sun? Is this a known quantity or do we only have an idea of objects above a certain size? And the second part of my question is, is there professional telescope projects actively trying to build a comprehensive map of our solar system or do we already have that? Thank you. Mm. All right. Uh, Thanks, Sandy. And uh, I've seen some of your wonderful photos online in recent uh, weeks. Um, Sandy took a really good photo of Saturn. All right. uh, I think I only saw it published this morning on his uh, Instagram page and uh, he he explained how he did it. It was, I think it was a two-minute exposure or something Mm. to that effect, but, uh, yeah, really good job. He's very clever, is Sandy. Um, minor objects. We did talk a couple of weeks ago about that. Um, uh, what one of uh, fellow a scientist or an astronomer who said we really need to start looking at uh, objects inside mm. Earth's orbit of the Sun, uh, which could include these. But uh, to define a minor object, I suppose. Well, yeah, that's right. And so it's it's a, uh, you know yeah sandy um, raises um, a, an interesting question in the sense that uh, he's kind of put his finger on the answer already uh, so we know everything below us uh, above a certain size um, but below that size and that's probably probably um, well, okay, I've got to qualify this uh, because we're really talking about near-Earth objects here. Okay. Near-Earth objects uh, above one kilometre in diameter, we uh, think we know 95% of them uh, because that was what NASA was mandated to do. And they're, they're, they're big ones, so they're relatively easy. But they wouldn't be easy if, if they were in the asteroid belt. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to see them at that sort of distance mm. um, except by an occultation like the... Like the, um, the the one that was that, that was used to discover that Trojan asteroid moon that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, Polymele was it? Many sheep, the name of it. Poly- yeah, that's it that's was, the yeah. one I think. Anyway, um, so uh, the, it yes uh, depends whereabouts in the solar system you are. If you're in the near Earth environment, we probably know pretty well everything above a kilometre in size. Um, but you can then calculate from that because you know the distribution of objects above that size you know how many there are 
of, of a certain size. And then the numbers fall fall off as you go bigger until you get to the biggest asteroid series, which is a thousand kilometers in diameter, give or take. Yeah. And nine hundred, I think. Um so so you've got a spectrum of the size, uh, you know, the number of objects of any given size. And so even below the one kilometer or so that we know about, uh, one kilometer above and above, when you get to that level, you can extrapolate the curve. So you can statistically deduce how many objects there are of a smaller size. You just don't know where they are for the most part. A lot of mm. them you do because they've found huge numbers of these things now. But um, the answer is, you know, we probably never know a complete map of the solar system if you want to include things below a few kilometers. Um it's it's because uh, again you've got the problem you know if you start thinking about the Kuiper belt way way out there beyond Neptune, it's only objects that are a couple of thousand kilometers that you're going to see like um, you know Sedna which is two thousand kilometers across Pluto's two two thousand kilometers across these are these are objects that you can find because they're big, but there'll yeah. be other objects there that are a couple of kilometers in diameter. Look at um, uh, Ultima Thule, for example, uh, or Arakoth, as it's known now, the object that New Horizons spotted uh, after mm. it went flying by. That's, a f- I think, 30 kilometres or something. Uh, that's And there'll be millions, probably, of objects of a similar size, but spread over vast areas of space uh, yep. and at such distance that we're never going to find them. That's so a that, pity. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you know there are telescopes that are that are m- mapping the solar system in the sense that they're discovering new uh, potentially hazardous objects among others, um, and that process continues. So as soon as anything's found and its orbit is calculated, which needs three or four observations, um, the more the merrier. Uh, then you 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 you've essentially mapped it. You know where it's going to be. Mm. All right, I'm I'm confident that we're okay because Sandy's on the job. Exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> very, very keen sky watcher is Sandy. Knows where everything is and catalogues it mm. accordingly, I reckon. Um, so, Sandy, yeah, yeah, no. Do you use the Australian <laughs> vernacular? Australia, yeah, yeah, that's no. right. Yeah, no. <laughs> never understood that. <laughs> I don't either. I never use it until now. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Sandy. Lovely to hear from you. Hope all is well in Melbourne and uh, that you're staying drier than we are. Hmm. Uh, This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. We might as well just keep rattling on, Fred, and uh, see what the next question is about. Uh, This one comes from Gareth. He's concerned that light is is too slow. Ah, yes. Hi, Fred and Andrew. Gareth from Brisbane here. Absolutely love the podcast. Thanks for bringing the amazing universe to my ears each week. My question, why is it that when we observe distant objects in the universe that are relatively close to the Big Bang circa 13 billion years ago, why is it that the light is only reaching Earth or the James James Webb Space Telescope now? Wouldn't everything have been much closer together in the past? And wouldn't we have expected this light to have reached Earth earlier, given the universe, I assume, is not expanding anywhere near the speed of light? I hope that makes some sense. Thanks again for a great podcast. Love it. Cheers, guys. Oh, can I? Can I do it? Can I? Yeah, go on. Go for it. Um, I think the universe is expanding beyond the speed of light. It did, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. 
It still is, isn't it? Um, Otherwise, yeah, well, I don't know. you know, so so yeah, you've got to work out what you mean by that because well, the expansion it, of the universe is accelerating. Yes, but um, the you know the speed at which it's expanding depends on how far apart objects are that you that you that are being carried away from each other, um, mm. and there may well be bits of the universe that are being carried away from us faster than the speed of light. But they're okay. beyond they're beyond the horizons that we can see. In mm. fact, that itself makes a horizon, and if, eventually, that's what, what will happen with the accelerated expansion of the universe. We will there will be objects whose light can never reach us. Oh, um, you, the journalist in me just wanted to tip water on Gareth just then, and yeah, I, I, I think I just flicked him with a drop or two. <laughs> no, you did. The, the the word to use. No um, offense, Gareth, but. The, I, <laughs> Back my brain. The magic word that you should have been using there is mm. inflation. Oh, um, yeah. because well, that's when that one. the universe did expand faster than the speed of light. It expanded by a factor of about ten to the fifty, in something like ten to the minus thirty-three of a second, oh. uh, which is you know that's just a colossal thing, and we just simply don't understand that. The evidence, the observational evidence, is there. Um, it's uh, been accepted since the early 1980s that the universe underwent, immediately after the Big Bang, the universe underwent this expansion, fantastic expansion, superluminal expansion, you could call it, because it's faster than yeah. light. Um, of course, it doesn't affect the speed at which light can travel through the universe, but the universe itself is is is, is, is whizzing faster than the speed of light. So um, that's why... Um, I'm not sure. Let me think back to Gareth's question. Well, uh, he's, he's asking essentially why we're seeing the light now. Why we can still see it. Yeah. Yeah. Be and it's because the it's just because the universe is so big. That's the bottom line. Um, it's so big that it takes stuff a long time to get here. From mm -hmm. um, uh, and Gareth's quite right that the universe was much more compact at the beginning, but after the period of inflation which was effectively the beginning it was a lot bigger than you'd think it was so it's it's uh, not, not as though everything was compressed together okay <laughs> i still don't quite can't quite get my head around it so it, it, it happened cataclysmically fast and inflation happened uh, everything went everywhere and then after inflation what we just kept it expanding down. Yeah, yeah. it's kept, oh, kept right. expanding, yeah. So if you look at diagrams, Andrew, of uh, the way space has changed shape over the history of the universe, and, and they've got to be... Sorry, that's my phone. <laughs> People ringing me at inappropriate times. Yeah. There you go. They've, um, these have got to be uh, cartoons, of course, because we can't see the universe from the outside because there isn't an outside. Sure. Um, but what you've got with the accelerated expansion is a kind of trumpet shape it's giving the universe a trumpet shape oh okay but it doesn't start off from zero it starts off with inflation so it's like a fat trumpet the shape of the universe if you can think of it that way um it's kind of like this yes that's more or less it. <laughs> that sums it up pretty well in fact it's got everything in there a bit of inflation at the beginning as well <laughs> mm. i couldn't help myself no i knew you'd We've got my new find, toy. Find a use for that. <laughs> I just, 
You opened that door. I did open the door, yes. Not intentionally, but I opened it. So um, it's. I think in inflation's the the, the kind of secret that that uh, that uh, is required for Gareth to get his head around what's actually going on. Right. Okay. Wikipedia, Gareth. <laughs> you could always try Wikipedia, which is very yeah. good. Yeah, if, you, actually, if you do a search for just... inflation in Wikipedia, though, you'll end up in some political group. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Mm. Mm. Inflation, you were say? I was going to say inflationary period. Uh, yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah. It's the, the, if you look up inflationary period or, or thereabouts in Wikipedia, I'm sure you'll find something about it. All right. Yeah, everything's been bouncing around ever since, and so some of the light continues to reflect and refract and still ends up back way. here. Still on its journey. Yeah. The thing's, yes, it's getting bigger. Yes, indeed. All right, thanks, Gareth. So nice to hear from you. Let's go now to Martin. Uh, he's got a very interesting question for us. Oh, Space Nuts. Martin Berman Gorvine here from Potomac, Maryland, USA. Writer extraordinaire in many genres. With a blue sky, or rather a black sky question for you. If the force of gravity were somehow to cease suddenly, how quickly would the Earth lose its atmosphere? And would we all die quicker from the disappearance uh, or or floating off into space of the air and, I guess, the crumbling of the Earth itself, or from the plasma and stuff from the sun coming apart hitting us. Love your show, guys. Can't wait for the answer. Berman Gorvine out. Thank you, Martin. I love what-if questions. So what's yeah. he asking? If the... If gravity what, stopped. Gravity stopped. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, We'd get flung off, wouldn't we? Um, well, well, it's a complex thing. So um, the the uh, first thing is the Earth would sort of suddenly start going in a straight line rather than sticking with the sun. Um, the sun would indeed start swelling uh, and there would be plasma. Um, the solar wind, uh, which takes a million so, sorry, Travels at a million kilometers an hour or so, and takes three or four days to get here. That that would certainly change um, as the outer atmosphere started becoming part of the solar wind. The Earth, the, sorry, the sun's atmosphere. Uh, but we'd be long gone before that because not only would we become weightless, the atmosphere would also be weightless and would very quickly. So we'd suffer this very rapid uh, loss in atmospheric pressure as we floated away. No. Um, and yeah, it wouldn't be pretty actually. And no, um, I, I think I think it would be. Uh, just thinking about the, you know, the. Uh, um, Martin mentioned the Earth crumbling, because the Earth is what keep what made it spherical, is the self gravity. Uh, I think it would probably not want to stay spherical for long because it's got. You know, very hot stuff inside, which probably starts trying to expand because there's oh. no self gravity holding it together. So there might, yeah, you know, eventually at least there will be terrible earthquakes as the uh, as the mantle tried to push up through the crust. It's very um, bleak. It will be a bleak outcome. Yeah, I think yeah. Um, it would make 
you know, what's his face drifting off into, into space uh, in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey looked quite homely, really, looked quite gentle. And the, the oceans, they just all... Yeah, they start floating away as well, yes. <laughs> well, they, they, because the atmosphere is... The atmospheric pressure is dropping, so the yep. oceans, their boiling point would fall uh, oh. and eventually they'd start evaporating very rapidly, yep. Yeah, I don't think we'd be here for long, would we? No, we wouldn't. I mean, it'd be nice to float away, but I think the other consequences... Yeah, not like that, though. No. <laughs> you want to be able to come back and go to bed at night. You do. Well, of course, you want to have a happy ending, which... Um... Yes, wouldn't, wouldn't be very happy under those circumstances. No, no not uh, at all. Would, would not be a pretty picture, Martin, but um, I'm looking forward to reading that book. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I get ideas for your next one. Um, I've got ideas for my next one. Oh, I'm just, good, good. I just yep. don't know when I'm going to find the time to, to, do, to do them. Yeah. Because um, as, as people may be starting to become aware, we've got a second podcast now yes. with uh, Astronomy Daily, and uh, it's only a short-form podcast, which we're doing, well, every day. <laughs> And um, yeah, it's um, it's yeah, early indications are people are enjoying it. Good, and That's good. Uh, enjoying my co-host who seems to be very witty and a bit of a smart <laughs> man. Yeah, yeah. Oh um, dear, but I lift my yeah. game, haven't I? Oh, AI, no, no. If AI can be wittier than <laughs> no, no, <laughs> you don't want to go there. No, okay. <laughs> no, but um, look out for it. It's on the Space Nuts website, the um, Astronomy Daily podcast. That um, uh, most people are looking at as an add-on, and it gives them something to do waiting for this one. So oh, that, nice. that's, I, I never expect, expected that reaction, but uh, yeah, that's good. So they, they seems they're working well together. Mm. Uh, by the way, thanks, Martin. Great to hear from you. And don't forget, if you do have questions for us, you can send them to us via the Space Nuts website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. There's an AMA tab at the top that um, enables you to send voice questions, which is always lovely to, to get. Uh, or you can send us a text question or an email question if you like. And on the right-hand side, there's another button that says send us your voice question. We're not being subtle about that, obviously. <laughs> two ways of sending voice, one way of sending text. We don't mind either way. We, uh, we'll take either. Uh, but please keep them coming in. We do love to hear from you. Uh, we're going to um, finish up for another week. Fred, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us. Oh, it's always a pleasure. No, it's good fun and um, amazing milestone, 320 of these. Yes. <laughs> so let's look out for the next 320 see how we indeed go. yes indeed uh we'll be back next week with 321 in the meantime don't forget to leave reviews on your favorite podcast distributor and if you've uh, ever considered becoming a patron you can do that on the space nuts website as well okay that's where we're going to leave it thanks fred we'll see you soon take care bye for now you too bye-bye and from me andrew dunkley thanks for listening to another episode of space nuts we'll catch you next time Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. <laughs>